From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Colin Donovan. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Hey, tremendous Friday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Colin Donovan is itching to answer your questions this Friday. The number to be on the program is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. Two nine eight five. I want to call from Kuala Lumpur today. Do you know something? No, I'm just. That's, that's, <laughs> you want it, somebody in Kuala I'd like, Lumpur? I'd like someone to... in Kuala Lumpur to to give us a call today on EWTN's open line. Um, if you're not near a phone and you have a question for Colin, you can always email that in. Send us an email at openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky. And Ace McKay is our celebrity social media maven today. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host is here every Friday, our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan. How are you? Pretty good. Ready to strike into a three-day weekend. Huh? Woo-hoo. So much for using this as an evergreen. <laughs> uh, I've got some emails here. One uh, is from Joan, and she says, Good afternoon. I was wondering if Colin can recommend several books that would be suitable for a Catholic women's book study focused on prayer or growing in specific virtues. We recently completed Dan Burke's book, The Devil in the Castle. Most of the... Uh, I think that's Teresa of... Avil is, or maybe he was writing on the interior castle. Anyway, yeah, I think most, he, he's, yeah, he yeah. certainly favors yeah. Teresa's writing. That's for sure. Most of the participants are mothers of young children and are interested in growing in mental prayer amidst the busyness of their vocations. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about two things: uh, the traditional three ways of the, of the spiritual life is the penitential, the illuminative, and the unitive. So you have to combine the pursuit of the virtue part, that's the, poten- the penitential, not doing the things we ought not to do, as well as that disposes us then to be uh, illuminated and to go beyond the, the ordinary prayer of meditation, uh, whether through the rosary or contemplation of scripture or, or whatever means is chosen. So I think for a good basic book, uh, Father Wade just published one, and I'm not at all partial because I did the Nihil Obstad on it, on Catholic Essentials, uh, where he looks at uh, the issue of of the virtues and other aspects of what is essential to the Catholic spiritual life. I I think that would be be a good one on that. Uh, Sadly, there are a number of older books, um, uh, like Father Lean's uh, Mental Prayer, who's a redemptorist writing in the 40s or 50s, uh, which I devoured when I read it. There are some good books like that. Most people, I think... If they're looking for, as Dan has done, 
if they're looking for a first dive into that theological genre, you don't start with John of the Cross. You do start with Teresa because she takes, she has a, a more mystical, non, it's methodological or methodical, but at the same time, it's not uh, heavily theologized in the way that uh, John of the Cross uh, it works are, in which he applies a good deal of St. Thomas's thought and other theologians uh, to his, his writings. So I, I think uh, a simple a simple work like the, uh, you know, you talked about the castles, uh, something like that. I have one. What's that? The Prayer Primer by our good friend Father Thomas Dubé of Happy Memory. That would be an excellent one as well, because you can't assume an audience that is at the higher levels. You assume an audience which is pretty much starting out. And uh, most Catholics in life, including myself, uh, we were, were safe thinking we're just starting out and unsafe if we think we're, we've reached the higher levels of prayer. So uh, that's a good place to start. Very good. Thanks so much for that email. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Um, Patsy would like to know, she said, I've heard different priests offer different answers on whether or not Mary is considered to be co-redeemer along with Jesus as redeemer. Is she co-redeemer or not? Is this answer covered in the Catechism? It's not covered in the Catechism because it hasn't been defined. However, it is part of the general corpus of, of uh, dogmatic theology on Mary. Uh, it requires explanation as popes, uh, uh, popes have used the term, I think, of half a dozen times in the 20th century, different popes. And so what has to be done is I think an explanation has to be devised which makes that a clear assertion not of any equality between Our Lady and Our Lord. There is certainly no essential equality, but in cooperation, she gave herself totally as did he. The difference is what he could give versus what she could give. And he did the ultimate thing, and that is by, by giving himself and making that, uh, that bond of uh, reconciliation with the Father. But Mary cooperated all along the way. Um, I've used this analogy before. Everyone understands that in an airplane there's a pilot and a co-pilot. Uh, certainly the pilot and the co-pilot know their roles. The navigator and the first officer know who is, who is top dog there. It's the pilot. Uh, so the term itself has been polemicized, sadly, both within the church and against the church from those outside. Uh, but there is probably a way to do it, and when the Holy See is, I think, in the future, uh, satisfied itself that it can do that without uh, disrupting uh, uh, relationships across the ecumenical spectrum with the Orthodox and the Protestants, it will probably do it. It's theologically sound, however, properly understood. 833-288-EWTN is our uh, toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, Dan writes in, says, I have two questions for you. <laughs> I like this. He says, first, when I take a shower in the mornings, I always start praying the Lord's Prayer. When I finish the Our Father, I continue praying, deliver, deliver us, Lord, from every evil and grant us peace in our day. In your mercy, keep us from all sin and protect us from all anxiety as we await in joyful hope the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, etc. All the way up to the offering of our neighbor, the sign of peace. Uh, 
I've heard on other EWTN radio shows that certain prayers from the Mass should only be spoken by priests as part of Mass. I know that the Lord's Prayer is great, but what about everything else? Okay. <clears throat> I guess that's an invitation to pass over the shower part. Uh, <laughs> but which recalls an old joke about whether you, uh, you know, pray when you shower or shower when you pray. And certainly to pray with you sh- when you shower is that's good. You can do anything when you do any human activity. Uh, and the second half of that was, <laughs> again. Uh, the second half is, um, I always seem to begin yawning when praying the rosary, do you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, for me, it's the chaplet. I'm not, tell me, don't ask me why. Maybe because we do it at Maybe because it's at 3 a.m.? <laughs> <laughs> no, we do it as a family at the end of the day because we're not all together at 3 p.m., so it's, it's, it's done a little bit out of order. But as I've noted, it's probably it's 3 p.m. in Hawaii when we say it, so we feel like we're on solid ground. Yeah, you know, and there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, we need to be genuine in our efforts of prayer, certainly, but we can get a little legalistic about some of these things. And I've yeah. heard all so, and I've experienced some myself. I've heard all sorts of people talk about, "I'm trying to pray the rosary every day." Well, it's getting to be 11:59 p.m. and I haven't prayed the rosary yet. If I start before midnight, does it count? If I start <laughs> when it's still midnight, it's not yet midnight in another time zone. Does it count? You know, uh, if I rattle through it in 15 minutes and I'm not really contemplating the mysteries as deeply as I should, does it count? And there's we can get really scrupulous and legalistic yeah, yeah. about some of these things, can't we? We can. And I remember uh, Father Lawrence back in the day in the seminary, I think we spent a day talking about canonical time in one of the classes, precisely because priests were concerned about saying the liturgy of the hours, which was in the older, in the pre- previous cold and the code previous norms, all of the offices, Latin. yeah, in Latin and all of the offices. And then so the, the norms today are, are quite different. You still have the, 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 the times for the, the major hinges, the morning prayer and evening prayer. You do one of the daytime prayers. You, you do don't the, have to do all seven anymore. Yeah, and, yeah. right. And you're also, you also have some liberty in there, precisely because priests were getting all tied up in this question. Okay, am I, is it the clock hour or... I'm in this time zone, and actually my formal midnight is like 12.30 clock time, so does that count? Or <laughs> I mean, it really got very uh, absurd, and so the church backed away from that. <laughs> 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. You know, producer extraordinaire Michael McCall has no regard for whether our conversations are finished or not. He's a slave to the clock. Speaking of the legalism we were talking about earlier, he is a slave to the clock. 
Well, I was told in one a former show that I mean this was a requirement of the superior of this department. These, you know, these clock times and certain events like music that have to begin on time. Yeah, well, that guy's a problem too. Eight three three two eight eight EWTN is our toll free number. Eight three three two eight eight three nine eight six. Brand new book, fresh off the print, the the presses from EWTN Publishing. Uh, taught by 10, a psychologist's father learns from his 10 children by our good friend, Dr. Ray Garendi. He gives guidance that will help you gain confidence toward molding and instructing your own children. You'll be moved by stories of children who were affected by serious health issues, substance abuse, and unstable foster care placement. And you'll also learn the power of affection to show your children your love, um, to resolve and avoid conflicts, teach respected manners, and much more. It is Taught by Ten, A Psychologist's Father Learns from His Ten Children by Dr. Ray Garendi, who has ten adopted children uh, from various backgrounds, Mm -hmm. all of them, you know, really difficult backgrounds for the most part. And then, of course, Dr. Ray's lovely wife, Randy, has 11 children because she has to parent Dr. Ray. 833-288-EWTN. That's available at EWTN's religious catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. To the phones we go. First up is Anne in Albany, New York, listening on the EWTN app. Anne, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin. Hi there, uh, Dr. Donovan. How are you this afternoon? Well, pretty good, Anne. Thank you. Good, good. So I have a quick question. I'm just wondering um, if there is a scriptural or a traditional basis for playing in the spirit, uh, specifically during a charismatic healing mass. Um, well, there. What one thing is clear: there is nothing specific in, I think, in in the record. Uh, meaning sacred scripture. Uh, it is a phenomena that has been said to have been revived from uh, earlier in the church along with uh, the clear revival of the charismatic gifts. So, and it's under the governance of the church. And so going back to the post-Vatican II popes, Paul VI, John Paul II, I'm sure John Paul I, who will be beatified here this year, um, and Current, current Potiphar and Benedict have accepted the charismatic renewal and its activity in the church. It's under the guidance of the Holy See and of the local bishop. Uh, so obviously, what it is is one question. That it is, and that the church accepts it, I think, uh, is another. Otherwise, the charismatic renewal have been told not to do it. It seems to be with other of the charismatic gifts, and with all of them for that matter. Uh, there, there is no automaticity to this. It's a discernment uh, that is made. Uh, in other words, there are individuals who have different gifts in the renewal, and they exercise those gifts. Um, and so uh, that's discerned I, by the leadership of the renewal. Ultimately, the church can intervene if it wants to. So there is a pathway for all of these kinds of things. The church, as in many other things, you look at the claims of mysticism and even apparitions and that, she doesn't usually just dive in with both feet unless there's something uh, truly out of order there. So all of this has become fairly normal activity in the church, uh, certainly made controversial by those who dislike the charismatic renewal. Uh, 
Uh, but it's quite clear that the church doesn't have that attitude towards it. So the theological foundation for it, there are probably others. Uh, I don't know if uh, Ralph Martin, I know he has written some things in this area. There are probably others who have looked into the theology more deeply of some of these practices, but yeah. nothing comes to I'm mind not, at yeah, the moment. Yeah, I'm not sure about the actual theology or what has actually been written about it. Um, you know, so with the authority of me and no one other than me, I can yeah. just speak to you experientially that I think this is kind of a case-by-case situation because I can promise you that there are very authentic instances of this. Right. And I'm probably pretty sure, having swam in these waters pretty extensively, that there are maybe some that fall a little short of that description. Yeah. Um, but I think... And that's the discernment element. That's right. And I yeah. think, But I think to give folks in this kind of an arena the benefit of the doubt is is reasonable charity. Yeah. Now, there is one distinction that can be made. It doesn't touch this necessarily, but with the charismata in general. And that is the church does not accept the way Pentecostalism as a non-Catholic movement looks at this, especially those branches that assert essentially that baptism in the Spirit constitutes the essential element of the Christian life. The Church says that's false, that baptism is the foundation of the Christian life. And the best explanation I have read of sort of revival of this is that in people in whom their baptismal graces, they've walked away from them, maybe they've pushed them down, maybe they've not corresponded with them or whatever, that in some of these experiences, it's a revival of that grace. So it's nothing new that's added. It's that, I guess, their openness, perhaps, in a sense, permits God to bring out of them that baptismal grace which they already possessed and which had not been fruitful in them. That's maybe, if you're looking for theology, as good an explanation as you get. But nothing ever, as far as I know, has been formally uh, affirmed by the Church herself on, on that. Is that helpful at all, Ann? Yeah, no, I really appreciate that uh, very much, and I'll, I'll uh, do some more digging, though. You, you suggest maybe Ralph Martin has some more insight, too? You might. Look, I know that Ralph is very well-versed. And, and you know, uh, um, On a New Pentecost by Patty Mansfield, uh, who was one of the people that was mm -hmm. there at the Duquesne weekend and, and wrote extensively about it, so Patty Mansfield would be a good resource for you. Um, to to read about and and I again Ralph would be a great person for you to sit down and talk to. I just don't know that he's written a whole lot on the topic. Yeah, yeah. And this brought to mind another suggestion. I remember the priest who was a Marian of uh, Stockbridge. I believe he just died recently. He wrote in the seventies a uh, a book called The Bride and the Spirit Say Come. I don't know if you're familiar with that. He did a, I thought was a marvelous, and I say this, I'm not a member of the Charismatic Renewal. I've just sort of known people who were and followed along as the years go on. Uh, he wrote a very good explanation of how all of these things integrate together and the, the, the integration of Take the Marian Movement, which has been a great blossoming, not just since Fatima, but uh, other things that have happened. Uh, but he, and in it, he explains how all of these things lead back to our Lord in the Eucharist and Our Lady in the Church. They're inseparable from our Lord in the Eucharist and Our Lady in the Church. And this is how he, he pictured how all of these things fold together as we awaited some time the return of the Lord.
Thanks, Ann. We really appreciate the phone call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Next off is Jefferson, Wisconsin. Christy is in Wisconsin listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Christy, you're on with Colin Donovan. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I'm just calling as a mom of uh, two teenage girls, older teenage girls, um, trying to bring them up correctly and modestly and pleasing to the Blessed Mother in today's world. And I just didn't know if you had any good um, information or videos or talks that um, or books that I could review with them. I also teach confirmation mm-hmm. teenagers that I also would like to be able to help and guide yeah. in this world. Um, I, well, I'm, that's not an area that I've dived into much. I think the basis is, of course, to have a proper understanding of uh, one's femininity for a girl or a woman. You know, when somebody like Alice von Hildebrand writing on, 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 on femininity, or John Paul II writing on, on femininity, or Edith Stein writing on the nature of the woman, to get a good theological foundation in that. Now, that's really something the mother is going to have to do to explain it to the daughter. On the books themselves, I would say you're going to find the more plenty of the old-fashioned style of books, uh, where you know everything was uh, you know strict and so on and so forth, and that that all has its place, because obviously modesty is something that is going to be a perception uh, if you're speaking of modesty in general or you're speaking of modesty before members of the male sex. Uh, then obviously being modest is a consideration. Uh, I think the the practical norms have changed over time, and that's one thing. Uh, and so this fits in well in Catholic theology with something Thomas Aquinas taught, and that that modesty is to some degree of cust- custom customary character to it. So the modesty of a, of a, uh, Catholics, uh, I remember many being scandalized when he went to the South Pacific and the women with their uncovered breasts bringing up the, because that was a particular, you know, thing. It's not a dis- occasion of, of s- sexual stimulation in cultures that are brought up that way. Now, that doesn't mean throw open the doors at all. It just means there is a customary element. And so you look at both the strict norms of what modesty is, and that is to not inspire uh, lustful thoughts in another, and also to present oneself, modestly also refers to the presentation of oneself as one is. So you have to also have a certain openness to others, you know, and not be coming across as a scold of others, for example, but at the same time, in a way which also represents your Christian faith, your Catholic faith, your dignity as a woman, your dignity as a child of God. And that's a lots of values, and our, our culture has made it, our culture is so far gone <laughs> that I think there is almost a necessary corrective called for, and many people do that. Uh, but the moral necessity of taking the strongest, strictest view, such as maybe early 20th century views of modesty, not necessarily called for, but at the same time, that doesn't mean the doors are wide open. It does mean that care and regard for the purpose of modesty, and that is not to be a scandal to those who could fall into the sin, into sin as a consequence of the way one dresses or the way one acts. Acting is part of, uh, of modesty. 
Uh, so complex area, and I can't tell you a book that I'm thoroughly familiar with enough to say that, yeah, this, this I think is a good balanced presentation of the issue. Christy, if you'll stay right there, we'll come back to you in just a minute. I've got some solid contemporary resources for you uh, that will help you in, in what you're going for. So just stick right there. We'll pick you up on the other side. And we've got plenty of time for your phone calls as well at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Friday with Colin Donovan. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. We're talking to Christy in Jefferson, Wisconsin. Uh, Colin just gave a beautiful um, uh, treatment of the issue of modesty, uh, especially in our contemporary culture with the way people dress. And, Christy, I've got some great resources. If you'll Google the Chastity Project, which is Jason and Kristalina Everett, um, they do a lot of things uh, surrounding chastity, and part of uh, the stuff they do is it you know involves modesty and, and modest dressing and things like this. Also, Dr. Carrie Gress, and I don't know what her writing partner on this project's name was, but there, I think, are three books out now called The Theology of Home, The Theology of Home, and uh, I think in in those volumes they deal with the issue a little bit. Um, if not, if you just uh, Google Dr. Carrie Gress, she has uh, a couple Marian books that I know definitely deal with, uh, with this topic. And then uh, if you go to womenofgrace.com, um, they have... Uh, you know, the apostolate is basically built on a foundational study that women do in groups, but they also have a Young Women of Grace foundational study, and the materials are designed sort of like a fashion magazine, and they deal extensively with modesty and modest dressing in the Young Women of Grace. So Jason and Kristalina Everett, The Chastity Project, uh, Dr. Carrie Gress, a uh, great resource, and then if you go to womenofgrace.com and search for Young Women of Grace, those are some resources that I think will help you. We yeah. appreciate the phone call today. And it's not exclusively a female problem. I oh, mean, yeah, no, you're absolutely every right. Every time I go to Mass, sometimes the way men dress is yeah. if they were going to the beach or a picnic or yeah. something like this. Yeah. So it, it's an area, and this is the element, modesty, we think of it only in the sexual context. No, modesty has to do with one's demeanor. Uh, this is one of the reasons that traditionally the church has opposed tattoos. Very minor issue, most venial sin. But the the element is, you know, the presentation of yourself as a Christian man or woman, uh, that will it's have an effect. respect you show to our Lord, right? It's respect you show other. to each other, and it's also the invitation you give to others of a, of a virtuous Christian person that I would like to imitate. So modesty is a very wild field, wide field. It's not at all limited to this area. But I think whether you're a man or a woman, having, getting a deep understanding of yourself and who you are before God is the, is the starting point uh, for not treating yourself with the triviality that many do in the way they dress today, whether it's, you know, around, around the, the home or around the, at the beach or going out. Uh, you know, you see pajamas in the malls. I mean, it's just no sense of self, no sense of personal dignity or worth. 
833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. A couple of open lines for you at 833-288-3986. Greg is in Omaha, Nebraska. He's listening on Spirit Catholic Radio today. Greg, thanks for holding. You're on with Colin. Good afternoon, gentlemen. Bless Mm -hmm. you for the work that you're doing. Sure. So my question has to do with uh, discernment, my personal discernment. Let me give you a quick background where I am. I think my faith life has accelerated over the last six months. And um, I would say my daily practices are scheduled and routine. Not routine in a boring mm-hmm. way, but routine in that I've planned my day out. Um, so in the morning, I'll say a morning prayer. At noon, I'll pray the gospel, Lexio Divinia. Three o'clock, I've made an effort many days over the last two and a half weeks to spend time in front of the exposed blessed sacrament, praying what I think are some very powerful prayers, along with a, a novena. And um, in the evening when I go to bed, I, I do pray a rosary. And while I've been in front of the Blessed Sacrament, the, the question that I'm, I'm asking now is, what does God want me to do with my life? Mm-hmm. I, have, I have surrendered my life to Him. I've made that leap of faith. I've told him many times, I will do what he wants me to do. But that's just it. I can't seem to clearly understand or see the direction that he wants to take me in my life. So if you could comment on that and maybe provide Mm -hmm. some simple explanations or maybe a little guidance. Yeah. Well, I'll I'll do two parts, the prayer part and the direction part. Uh, The prayer part is, I sort of alluded to it earlier in the show, it's the process of disposing oneself. And that is uh, generally treated under the the title of the penitential uh, way. In other words, we avoid mortal sin. Uh, if we're doing that, then we try to avoid venial sin, um, and we try to avoid any deliberate sin. In other words, the choice of sinning. I could do other, but I will, whether it's a grave or, or a, a venial matter. That's, that's on the virtue side of the affair. On the prayer side, it sounds like you're doing the things you, you pray, uh, you read the sacred scripture in a prayerful way. Uh, the objective there in uh, the growth in the spiritual life uh, is to go from meditation, which is a prayerful but re- still reason co- uh, viewing or contemplation, although I, I'm one of those who tend not to use that in the context of meditation, uh, of, of, the, of the truths of the faith, whether it's in sacred scripture or uh, in a book like Mother, always used to recommend divine intimacy as a as a meditation aid, and there are many dozens of meditation aids out there, things to to read and to pause and to reflect on. In other words, you're trying to form the mind, 
You're trying to do what you can do in this arena. And that's dispositive of greater, of a deeper prayer life. Uh, the praying of the rosary, the saints have said, is the one of the best ways of disposing for that because you're contemplating the mysteries of Christ and Our Lady, the mysteries of his life and teaching and so on. You're making a comparison with your own life and saying, wow, I'm not, I've got a long way to go on this point of fidelity, of trust as our Blessed Mother had, or whatever the, the, whatever the, uh, the imagery of that mystery is. And so, again, this is to get at the deep roots of, of, of sin, uh, realizing that sin is ultimately rooted in our soul, and we want to identify the roots, and we want to pair them, uh, a slow process in itself, and in our prayer life to be disposed to a greater, greater prayer. We can't command, we can't, by a method, get contemplative prayer in the strict sense of that. We can get to what would be called acquired contemplation. <clears throat> and I would look at it this. If you were sitting on the beach and you were looking at a sunset over the ocean, you know, as I've done many times, uh, both in and out of the Navy, you go down to the beach, you're looking, you want to see that sunset. You can analyze it. You can look at, oh, the beautiful different colors in that. Or you can step back and be simply in awe of it, like you're embracing the whole as one. That would be a natural contemplation of the sunset. And so in our meditation, we start to see the connections in the whole more and more by our meditation. By our meditation on the scripture, we see the, the interrelationships and connections there. It becomes a simpler simple prayer simple prayer or prayer of the simple or it uh, or an acquired contemplation would be enough in which we grasp the whole as if it were one but we do this naturally because our brain is now wired to see this in the most synthetic and integrated way at some point if god feels he wishes to he can give us infused prayer and that is something we cannot get to by any method or procedure or process except disposing ourselves in the penitential way through our seeking of virtue, our pruning of sin, our praying to get closer to God and meditating on the truths of God. So that's, that's what you need to do now. And then you have to wait on the Lord because you can't make him give you that. So that's the prayer part of that. And the, the infused contemplation we usually think of the mystics whose private prayer gives them deep insights into the nature of God, uh, into the plans of God, uh, into their own, their own life, their own weaknesses, and so on. And the purpose of that is to root out the spiritual elements of the sin in us because there's all these material things that attract us and we get bogged down in that. But even when we get done in that, we have spiritual pride and spiritual, oh, I've got to know about every apparition and mystic there is. Or, or I, you know, I got to be the, you know, on top of all of this theological information uh, to be able to ex explain it to, to everybody who asks. That's a good thing. That's what I do for a living. But sometimes it can be motivated by pride as well to stand over and be superior. All of those spiritual roots have to be rooted out 
That's what contemplation in the unitive or the uh, illuminative way does. It illuminates us into all of these things. But you have to dispose yourselves to God. You can't make it. So you continue working on the virtue. You continue working on the meditation uh, in the ways that you're doing it, the prayer, whether it's just sitting before the Lord. That's a good prayer. It's as good as thinking before the Lord. But you've got to do the meditating too, the scriptures or through the rosary and, and, and other means. Now, the direction part is really always waiting, too. We know our direction. We have the Ten Commandments. We have a vocation in our life that circumstances or choice has given us, the priesthood or marriage or whatever it is. And at Fatima, in uh, or not at Fatima at this point, but in, um, I think she was in Tui or Ponte Vedra, I'm not sure, Sister Lucia asked, what what was penance? That What is the penance Our Lady wanted? What does Our Lord want? Our Lord said, The penance I ask the fulfillment of your duties of your state and life. Most of us don't have to go as a parent or as a worker, as a co-worker, as a friend of others. We don't have to go very far to find crosses in our life. What we often do is we rebel against those crosses. When the penance the Lord is asking is fulfilling our duties of this, our state and life, so in that way, we don't have to, you know, get out the discipline and start whipping ourselves or uh, do all of those things. And some people may find that their spiritual guide or director will allow them to do those kinds of things. But the easiest and the safest ones for our humility is to fulfill the duties of our state in life. And so that's where to put your effort. And I was given great advice in the seminary when I was, you know, didn't know where I would go. I was a layman in a seminary coming from a problematic situation in the place where I had been living, uh, the diocese, and what do I do? And the, the priest, Father Augustine Kalber, said, quoting Augustine or a facsimile of, of Augustine, he said that uh, you can, if you look back in your life, you can see how God has led you through all the crooked lines of your life, and that should give you trust and confidence that he will lead you forward. So the big thing is not to fear. Do, do not be afraid, as John Paul II said. Uh, look forward and let God lead you. Be open to where he wants to lead you. But most of all, do the here and now what you're asked to do in your prayer life, in your family life, in your work life, and be open to what God may may bring into your path. Then you make a discernment whether a particular direction is your way to go. Uh, getting nervous about it, getting anxious about it, uh, having been down those roads, I can tell you, you're wasting your time and it doesn't get you solutions. Just persevere in prayer and in your, your duties and responsibilities and the Lord will lead you. Uh, next stop is Grand Rapids, Michigan. Colleen is in Grand Rapids listening on Holy Family Radio. Colleen, you're on with Colin Donovan. Oh, Colin Donovan, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. And thank you thank you for your spiritual uh, uh, discernment. It's like uh, I've learned so much listening to EWTN. I'm not Catholic, but mm -hmm. uh, I feel very drawn to the Catholic Church. And uh, such an amazing... Uh, uh, journey that I've had, and it's like, and mm -hmm. I thank Mother Angelica for the TV station or the ministry that she had brought to the public, and 
I just want to say thank you for all the oh, you're welcome. listeners, welcome. all the listeners that contribute to EWTN. My question is, what type of prayer could I say for divine mercy for my home and for my roommates that are not mm-hmm. Christian? Sure. Um, well, we go back to the gospel and our Lord speaking of you know the you know scandalizing children. He said, "There don't scandalize them. Their angels always behold the face of the Father. Everybody, believer or not believer, has a guardian angel. So ask your guardian angel and their guardian angels. They don't have to know it. God knows it. The angels know it. Ask them for that spiritual protection." And if you feel moved to, for example, to do specifically Catholic things, although you're not a Catholic, we have the St. Michael's Prayer, which is a call upon the Archangel Michael, who we know was the, the, the uh, protector of Israel, and the Church has her as its angelic patron. Uh, and so in that regard, we can say he is the protector of, of all Christians as well. Uh, so prayers to St. Michael, or just making a prayer and asking his help in your own words. These, these are great prayers. The Our Father, of course, which all, all of us Christians accept, deliver us from evil. Uh, and that's what your, spirit, your spiritual protection uh, seeks, any prayer for it, and that's to be delivered from evil. And who better to ask than the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity? So there, there are a few ways, and as your journey leads you closer to the church, to the church you'll find that uh, the church has wonderful prayer books. Uh, our EW10 Religious Catalog has them as well uh, it, on any subject that you want to uh, investigate. Um, and so, as I was telling the gentleman before you, let, let the Lord lead you. Uh, don't feel pressured, just... Be open and let the Lord lead you where he wants to lead you. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Be sure to check out Divine Intimacy Radio Sunday morning, 6.30 a.m. Eastern Time. Dan and Stephanie Burke in this new series they're running now about visions and revelations with Father Matthew McDonald. That's Divine Intimacy Radio, Sunday morning, 6.30 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. And um, got a, one of our affiliates is having a big anniversary this year, the good folks in Walla Walla, Washington, listening to us on 100.7 FM in Walla Walla, celebrating 21 years of EWTN uh, radio broadcasting. Uh, congrats to Rod and Kimberly Fazari and their whole team uh, in Walla Walla, bringing listeners solid EWTN programming for 21 years. Next up is Donald in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, listening on Oklahoma Catholic Broadcasting. Donald, you're on with Colin Donovan. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, I had a question uh, regarding the Church's moral teaching on capital punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, if that has uh, you know, changed over the years, or I don't know if things change around Vatican II, but yeah, clearly, like in the Middle Ages, but you know, both in the Catholic and Protestant world, I I believe capital punishment was a, a prescribed punishment for heresy, and so I didn't know, you know, the Church's emphasis taking a strong stance against capital punishment is something new, and then if so, how do we square that with the fact that you know we always want to say that the Church's moral teaching never changes? Yeah. 
Uh, the church's teaching doesn't change, but the prudential application does. We have to remember that, and this is the only algorithm, to use a contemporary term, that squares the teaching through all the ages. As a matter of justice, capital punishment for the, for, for the punishment of capital crimes is clearly uh, taught in the sacred scripture as possible in the Old Covenant, and also, as you noted, has been used in church history uh, also. In other words, for a mortal danger to a society, the church permits, for instance, just war. The church, which is a kind of capital punishment of those who are attacking you, uh, permits a justified self-defense. Somebody breaks into your home which, as it were, is a capital punishment for a person who is aggressively attacking an individual, in their way, a certain analogy to uh, self-defense, to, to just war, and therefore of societies to defend itself. So the possibility of using capital punishment as a means of correcting sin or preventing damage or in the case of war or to oneself or society, is clearly envisioned by both the Old and the New Covenant. The application and the Church's willingness to use it has clearly changed through time. In the first centuries, the centuries of the Roman persecution, if you were a Catholic, and all Christians were, if you were a Catholic, you could not be a, in any office in Rome, Roman society which obliged you to possibly execute capital punishment. The church what took a decidedly, we would say, pacifist stance on this with the idea that although justice might be called for, it was the Christian's job to have a more evangelical, a gospel approach to that. And we know that how Christ acted in that, and the example is the woman caught in adultery. He didn't say you can't stone her to death. He said, who among you is without sin? Let him throw the first stone. And so she didn't get stoned to death. That's the evangelical approach. Now, once capital punish, once the, the church had started influencing society, in other words, after 313 and Constantine's edict in Milan that legalized the church, uh, he himself personally gave properties to the church. His mother, of course, St. Helen, we know all that she did to find the relics of the Passion and so on. The question arose uh, later on in, that, in the 300s, well, what does this do for the defense of the empire, the, uh, the defense of society through capital punishment? And it was said that these things could be legitimately done. But the attitude was quite, quite complex. And here is, uh, I like to use this as an example. I think it matches well with the evangelical motive which Pope Francis has used in revising the catechism in terms of the prudential application in a particular historical time to the use it's not saying that capital punishment is unjust or is an intrinsic evil like abortion. That's not only an intrinsic evil, it's obviously unjust. It's not saying that. 
It's speaking of the evangelical motive. So there was a judge around the year 360 who wrote to Ambrose, who was the Bishop of Milan, and he cites this case of uh, soldiers, and remember, this is now the nominally Christian empire. I don't know how thoroughly, but nominally uh, Christian empire, like we have the nominally Christian Western Europe in the United States today. Uh, He cites the case of soldiers who went on a rampage and killed civilians outside of their responsibilities. In other words, beyond what they could legitimately do. And he had the job of judging them. And it was certainly fitting because that was particularly heinous crime because under the color of authority they did this, this horrible thing, not in just war, not in legitimate self-defense. And so he wanted to know that now as a Catholic, I mean, can I do this as a Christian? Can I do this? And here is uh, the letter that Ambrose wrote to him. It's in all collections of Ambrose writings, letter 26, uh, he give the man, gave the man's name as Studius. I don't know that that was really his name. It seemed to be the habit in the ancient world to do that kind of thing. And he says, Here is an example for you to follow, for it may be that there is hope of amendment for this guilty person, if he yet be unbaptized, that he may receive remission, if baptized, that he may do penance and offer up his body for Christ. See how many roads there are to salvation." This is why our ancestors, and here he's referring to the pre-Constantinian era, thought it better to be indulgent towards judges that by the terror of their sword the madness of crime should be repressed and no encouragement given to it. In other words, the church took no, didn't punish them or do anything if they felt they 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 needed to use capital punishment. And he goes on, For if communion were denied to judges, it would seem like a retribution on their punishment of the wicked. Our ancestors wished then that their clemency should proceed from their own free will and forbearance rather than from any legal necessity. In other words, that they freely give out mercy and not feel like the church is, is, uh, uh, you know, that they're obliged to forego that. And so I think this is the direction his church is heading and setting an example. And I think looking at the times around us, it makes me nervous in whose hands capital punishment is and uh, is under control. So it sounds fine until you're the victim falsely and unjustly. On behalf of our host, Colin Donovan, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it next week. Have a great weekend. Until we get together next week, God bless. <laughs>